Well, we've come to the end of a three-year journey in our study of the Gospel of John, uh, factoring in, taking summers in other directions, and then this past fall, having had the opportunity to look uh, at a number of questions as we participated with about 30 other churches in town in the Explore God uh, series. But here we are at the end of John chapter 21, looking at these last verses this morning. And we're going to begin our reading in verse 18, even though the bulletin says 20, just to, for the context of this, uh, of this conversation that Jesus is having uh, with uh, Peter here at the end. As has been pointed out, as we've been studying, the, the natural ending of the book of John seems to be in chapter 20, uh, and the purpose statement of the book is declared, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that they may believe, uh, uh, and that they, by believing you, may have life in his name. And then here we have John chapter 21, which is really somewhat uh, like a, an addition. It's a, an appendix uh, to answer questions that are lingering. Many Bible scholars believe that John added this later because there were questions lingering about some of the things that Jesus had said that were not recorded in the book but had been understood and passed down through tra tradition. And also, I suspect, because many people wonder about the relationship with Peter, who is so prominent in this particular gospel. And so John added and shows us how our God works, reconciling even those who have failed him. We come to our passage this morning, uh, verses 18 through 25. You will hear the word of God. The Lord speaking to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to, G to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been had reclining at table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to Peter, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This was the disciple who was bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, we do come with thanksgiving this day to your presence. Having lifted our voices in praise to your name, which you are worthy to receive. Having come clean as we confess our own brokenness. And yet 
being reminded of your grace in which we can be renewed. We now come to honor you by listening to the voice of your spirit as you have recorded these words and as your spirit speaks to us today, even as I preach, that you may shape us until we all reach full maturity, reflecting the character of Christ in our lives and in our relationships and before the watching world. Bless us this way that you would also make us a blessing to those with whom we live, that we would be trophies of your grace. We can discipline ourselves and try, but unless you build the house, unless you build our lives, all of our efforts are in vain. But we do pray to you with great confidence, for you have said your word never comes back empty, and that is bearing fruit. And may that gospel that we cling to bear fruit in us as individuals and as a church, even as it has been bearing fruit throughout the world since it was first declared and revealed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray in his holy name. Few, if any of us, will ever experience what Peter has just heard, the prophecy that Peter has just been told about his own future, that he would one day die a martyr's death. But even though very few of us will identify with Peter in that way, practically speaking, every one of us, like Peter, does endure undesired experiences that we can't do anything about. We see them coming at us like a a freight train, and yet we are unable to get out of the way. And at the moment those things are approaching us, they always seem so senseless. If we're honest, we ask, Lord, why? Maybe even, why me? But we are told in verse 19 the the purpose for which Peter was to be martyred. We're told after the kind of the the poetic uh, imagery that's used about the way that he used to live and what is coming forward. And we're told that when you were young, uh, you, you, you you did pretty much what you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and somebody will take you where you do not want to go. In the ancient languages, the ancient, they understood that the stretching out of the hands represented the... Uh, a, a crucifixion. And we're told in verse 19, this is described him so he would know by what death he is to glorify God. In other words, the purpose, not only of being told, but the purpose of the death that Peter was to experience was to be to the glory of God. And from that, we are reminded that every aspect of our lives is able to glorify God, that God is glorified not only through our successes, but even in our struggles, even in our sorrows and in our sufferings. And that's important for us to recognize because we all do succeed and we all do struggle and we all do suffer. The question is not whether we will experience them, but whether we will do so in a way that honors God, that is to the glory of God, and whether we recognize that even our sufferings can bring honor and glory to God. Our family had the opportunity to see this firsthand 
played out over a few years period. Probably been close to 15 years ago, but Carolyn's father passed away from complications of his treatment to cancer. He was a, a godly man. He had taken over for, uh, after a career in banking as the administrator of a very large church, and then added to his responsibilities after he had been serving the church for a number of years was to oversee the missions program of the church at the time, was the largest missions program in the, of any church in the PCA. They probably still would be, except they're now in the EPC, but that's a whole other issue. And in a short time, he became one of the most respected missions leaders in the world. This is not just the opinion of a son-in-law, but the opinion of such people as the leaders of the U.S. Center for World Missions and other missions writers. There was a book that was written by a missions leader a few years ago called All-Star Mission Churches. The man who wrote the book had been a former major league umpire. And so he wrote it kind of creatively and he listed by position different churches and different missions leaders at each position. Somebody was a catcher, somebody was a pitcher. And when it came down to who was the manager of that major league team, it was Carolyn's father who was listed as the manager of the best missions leaders throughout the United States and the world. When I was a young pastor in my first church, a very small church in Chattanooga, I was wanting to get some better ideas as to how we might be able to infuse the church with a, more of a missions identity. And so I, I called to, out to Pasadena, California, to the U.S. Center for World Missions. And I asked them some ideas. And as I talked to them for a moment, the, the guy on the other end of the line just said, well, how far are you from Knoxville, Tennessee? And I said, about two hours. He said, well, I don't know if you could do this or not, or if you'll be able to connect with him or not, but there's a church in Knoxville that if you call, the leader's name is Max Sells, if you will call him, and maybe he can give you some ideas. And so I said, just straight out, well, if he won't talk to me, I'll make sure he never sees his grandchildren again. <laughs> there was just a dead pause on the other end of the phone. I did tell him, to, you know, I thought for a moment, let's leave him hanging, but no. Um, and so he had tremendous effect in his leadership for missions, encouraging the missionaries who went out, visiting them, and even in strategic planning for reaching unreached people groups. One of his great desires of his personal life is that he would be able to renew the hope that at least one of his brothers had long ago forsaken in Christ Jesus. You see, their father had died at a relatively young age in the early 1960s. And at that point, his brother Bo was angry with God. And then when Carolyn's father got cancer, not only was his life and his illness used in a way that would glorify God because of the some of the nurses and others that they established relationships with at Emory University in Atlanta. But his brother came and spent a lot of time with him. In fact, his brother Bo began to pray for the first time in years. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and yet Carolyn's father passed away from complications of his cancer. And Bo's response was, anger and in renewed intensity he was furious with God 
And he said, I prayed, and God didn't do a darn thing. I clean it up for the fact that there's kids in here. And that was his mindset. Generally a good guy, quite colorful, and yet angry with God, believing he couldn't trust him. A few years later, my family moved from Pittsburgh. Carolyn and I took our kids and moved from Pittsburgh to East Tennessee, near where Bo lived. And Bo stepped in the gap, I think in part to be the grandfather that uh, his brother couldn't be because he had passed away. He was involved in our lives. He would visit our church occasionally. The first time he came, I had no idea he was coming. I just got a text sometime during the, ser- during the service because I was on vacation, and the text just said, Miguel, who was our youth pastor, is a really good speaker. That's how I knew they were at, uh, at church. And then Bo began having some health problems. One evening, Carolyn and I went to visit him in the hospital, and as soon as I walked in the door, Bo said rather excitedly and, and really quite incomprehensibly, I want you to do it, and you can let Frank do this much. Yeah, I understood that about as much as you understand that right now. And I said, what? He said, I want you to do it, and Frank can do this much. Now, I understood who the Frank was. Frank is their other brother, who was a minister, a PCUSA minister. I had no idea what Frank was going to do this much of and that I was going to do. And his wife said, he wants you to do his funeral. See, he'd been given news just a couple hours earlier that his illnesses had been caused by a previously undiagnosed brain tumor that was really untreatable. And then the next thing he said was, and I want you to help me to write a letter. I want you to, he said, I've, I've not been perfect and, and I've, I've given the wrong idea. He said, but I now get, I now understand why mother, his mother, and Mac, Carolyn's father, are so at peace at the end of their lives. And I want you to help me write a letter to everybody that I know. And I said, Bo, are you telling me that you want me to help you write a letter to tell people that you understand that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and that he is the only hope that you have? And Bo said, he's the only hope anyone has. Carolyn left the room because she was weeping. When she gathered herself, she called her mother. So this is her father's prayer. This is what her father was praying for when he was dying. This is what her father was praying for, that when they were spending time in the hospital, that somehow his life or even his death would be able to reach his brother. So this man who had been so effective in helping missionaries and through the missionaries, leading people from the nations to Christ, probably countless thousands of people because of the labor of that large mission force, was unable to impact his own brother and yet through his own death, demonstrated the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that when it came time for his own brother to face his death, he recognized the glory of God in his grace to his brother as it was in their mother. And he repented of his own sins, received Jesus Christ, and wanted to make sure everyone he knew understood the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. It was a death that glorified God, both Mac, his brother, and then a death of one who had lived his life rather colorfully. And yet was testified to. 
The day of the funeral, I chose to preach from the passage. Blessed in the eyes of the Lord is the path of his saints. And I had the whole substance of the message, but I just really didn't have the intro. Even as the series was, service was beginning started, I, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to begin. They'd lived in Johnson City, Tennessee all of their life. They'd been there for a number of years. The, the, the old first Presbyterian church was packed to overflowing because of the people they knew, most of whom were cultural Appalachian Southern Christians, meaning they really they knew about Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. As we were walking in, Frank, his brother, had said to me, well, what are you going to preach on? And so I told him, and he just laughed, and he said, good luck convincing this crowd that Bo was a saint. So I got an idea. Then I heard the eulogies, including Carolyn's cousin, who tells the first time that he played, uh, he outdrove Bo playing golf. He, and he's now a, a superintendent of a, of a golf course, and he said he remembers he was probably about 13 years old, and they were playing golf and with his dad and, and Bo and the younger Bo, uh, uh, the younger uh, Frank, out drove them. He turned around as an excited teenager. To which Bo just mumbled to him, "You sob," but didn't didn't uh, whatever and uh, tongue in cheek. And so this was the eulogy right before I get up to speak. And so when I stood up and I read the passage, I told everybody that was there. When I told Frank what I was going to say, he said, good luck convincing this crowd that Bo, that, that Bo was a saint. And I said, now having heard the eulogies, uh, Frank, I think you are right. And then proceeded to explain that the issue of being a saint is not our behavior, but it is a status that is bestowed on us because we are believers in Jesus Christ. And then mostly just read the, read the letter that Bo had, read, had written that everyone he would know would know the hope that belongs to those who die in Christ Jesus, a death that was to the glory of God. Now, it's important that we understand these stories because our own lives are written out for us in, in one sense, that everything we experience, God has ordained. We still have freedom, we choose, we respond to our circumstances. But even our sufferings, even death itself is an opportunity for us to glorify God. We see it in our own lives. We, as I saw it in my family or Carolyn's family. And we see it prophesied here for Peter. But one of the things that I do understand is that it is much harder to actually do uh, than it is to think about. It's been done, we know it, and yet in our own lives. And we see, I think, a hint in our text that it is much harder to do in the day-to-day -day than it is to think about, even in Peter's response. The idea that he was going to live his life for the glory of God uh, it certainly was his desire, but it was not something that came easy for him. And while in the end, when Peter died, he died in a way that continues to resound through the ages that he had not only accepted the fate that he was about to be crucified but declared himself unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord was and so he asked to be crucified upside down and so he was but his first response upon being told that this was going to be his fate 
we see in our text that Peter did what is so natural for many of us to do when we are experiencing or threatened with difficult circumstances. He began wondering about other people. We're told that after, immediately after Jesus says, this is the way that you are going to die and you're going to, your life is going to be lived and you're going to, your death, even your death is going to glorify me. He noticed that as they were walking along the beach, John had been following them or had, had come along behind them and he looked over his shoulder and he, then he says to the Lord, well, what about him? What about this guy? And the implication from the text and the way that Jesus responds tells us that probably going through Peter's mind was this is, you know, is he going to get a better deal than I'm going to get? I mean, I'm willing to do whatever you want, Lord. And if it glorifies you, but sounds like it's going to be painful. Is this guy going to get off, you know, like, you know, he just lives such John, this John, just lives such a charmed life. Nothing even ever seems to touch him. I don't know if you can relate to that or not. But what we see here in Peter is what, it, it really, it's a sin, but we would, we would call it the, kind of the, the curse of, of comparison. It's when we start looking around at other people's circumstances and we start thinking about whether other people have it better try to get our identity or our reinforcement emotional stability from the fact that well, other people have it worse. And it's an incredibly common, but it's an incredibly unhealthy thing for us. Now, there are types of comparisons that are healthy. In the book of Hebrews, we're told to, to imitate the lives of those who, through faith and through patience, have received the promise. And the only way you can imitate is uh, by, by watching and then somewhat comparing. What, you know, what do they do? What do I do? And how do I do more like they do? There is a healthy way when we are encouraged toward godliness and holiness. But the reality is most of the comparisons that we have are unhealthy either because they lead us to despair or they lead us to pride. And yet it is incredibly common. There's a, a writer named Jacquel Crow who poignantly describes the kind of comparison that we see taking place in this passage and which the Lord is, is warning us about. And listen to what she writes. We are plagued by comparison. We compare our bodies, our jobs, our families, our skills, our stuff, our intellects, in an ever-increasing desire for complete satisfaction. We want to be attractive, successful, and happy so we measure ourselves against the people around us. But instead of resulting in contentment, our comparison delivers compulsive jealousy, pride, and shame. We envy those who are better than us, and we look down on those who are worse than us. And once we've started comparing ourselves, we slide into a bitterly insatiable cycle. The more we compare ourselves, the, the more we need to compare ourselves. It's an addiction. We're on a quest for acceptance and joy, but are paralyzed by the pressure to look, do, and be better than the people around us. Because of this, we are distracted from our purpose, mission, and need to pursue holiness. And this is why 
comparison is so deadly. Does this sound familiar to any of you? It is just this chronic thing that is very common for any one of us. This idea that we look at ourselves, but we don't find our identity. We don't find our place until we figure out where it fits in in the grand scheme of the people who are around us. Andy Stanley says this, that comparison is determining where I am based on where everyone else is. And what we don't recognize is that while this tends to you know, seem benign on the outside, it, it does tremendous damage on the inside because what essentially it is doing, it is comparison is causing us to ask these kinds of questions. Who or what determines my worth? And how do I know that I am enough? And when we are comparing ourselves to others, we assume that our identity and our worth is determined by our class standing, by where we place among others. Depending on a number of factors, how you are raised, perhaps the successes that your family has experienced, the level of satisfaction varies depending on where you think you need to be. Some are not happy unless they are number one in everything. Others may be contented to find out that they're just not last. But either way, we're taking our eyes off of the Lord and we are getting our identity and our, our purpose. Everything is coming from others. And ultimately, it begins to erode us spiritually and relationally. And while we think that it's not a big deal, it is a big deal because of the effect that it has. And yet, in this passage, we see the cure for our comparison as well. And we see it in the response that Jesus gives to Peter. Because Jesus responds to Peter in a way that we probably wouldn't expect. I suspect that Peter wouldn't have expected it either. So Peter says, what about this guy? And Jesus says, essentially, what's it to you? I mean, it's a profound. It, it hit him right between the eyes, just like it would hit any one of us. Now, in this, I think it's interesting because we also see a, 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 an important, I'll call it a sub-point. I won't call it a rabbit trail because I'm not going to go very far down it, but it's important that we see it. It is true that we are free to come before God and ask him anything we want, talk to him about any concerns we have, ask him any questions that we want to ask him. But what we don't seem to understand, and sometimes uh, as I do counseling with people, I, I realize, and sometimes I see it in my own life, I forget and people forget or seem to not understand God is under no obligation to give us the answers to everything that we think that we are entitled to know. If you have any question about that, go back and read the book of Job. Job, who was a godly man, who was declared, even in the book as it's been written about him, who was without sin. Not perfect like Jesus is, but he wasn't sinning in despite the horrendous conditions that he was in. And then he was begins to lament his friends who are pseudo-top theologians come in and talk uh, with the earliest version of the prosperity gospel that you will find. Well, you must have done something wrong, because otherwise you wouldn't be suffering, because God only gives. God only wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. So Job, we're told, without sinning, began saying, What's, what is this? And the Lord's response to him is, all right, I've listened to your questions, now I'm going to answer you with a question. Where were you 
when I lay the foundations of the earth. In other words, it was a sharp way of saying, I'm God and there's things that you can't handle. You're on a must need to know basis. I've told you an awful lot of stuff. Some of it you don't need to know, but it's glorious. And that's not enough for you. In fact, you're not even studying what I've told you, but you want to know this. And you're demanding and you're angry if I don't give it to you. We see here clearly that Jesus feels under no compulsion to answer every question. And his sharpness tells us that. He doesn't reason with him and say, you know, know, he says just, what's it to you? Immediately putting Peter in his place. But he doesn't say just, what's it to you? He follows, he says, what does that matter to you? You follow me. What Jesus is doing here is he's telling Peter a very important point. It's a point that I think C.S. Lewis must have been considering when he wrote his, his book, The Horse and His Boy. If you're familiar with that story, there's a scene in which Aslan is, is speaking to Shasta. And Shasta has been asking the same kinds of questions that Job asked and that Peter wanted to know. To which Aslan says, child, I am telling you your own story. No one has told any story but their own. And yet, even as he makes that sharp and important correction, he does give him renewed grace. Because there's an invitation in the command. What's it to you about him? You follow me. And so in that statement, he is renewing the invitation that he's offered before, follow me. That itself is an expression of grace. The fact that we can come and follow and fellowship with God who has come in the flesh is made possible only because of the fact that while he is holy and we are not, but he died, which was his purpose in coming, burying our sins then rose again for our hope so that we could follow him and walk with him. What does it mean to follow Jesus, at least in a practical sense? First and foremost, it is the healthy comparison because it's to imitate his character. It's to so fix our eyes on Jesus as he's revealed in the passages of the scriptures, in his interactions with the disciples and even the the people who are around him, both those who loved him and those who hated him. It is to recognize the character of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and then pray and to copy that and pray that the Holy Spirit would begin to manifest that, that the fruit of the Spirit become more and more abundant in our lives. It also means to follow Jesus is that we engage in his mission. See, we can't say we're following somebody if we're not going where they go. And Jesus is going to the ends of the earth in order to reach people, particularly those who are the least in the eyes of the world. And he's going everywhere. And to follow him means we go wherever it is that he is directing us and calling us to go, even if that itself leads to death, as is evident in the conversation he's having with Peter. It means taking up our cross, which is what he's talking about to Peter here. Here's what's going to happen to you. That was a very real thing. It's metaphorical for us to pick up our cross. But it's something that we tend to misunderstand in Christian churches oftentimes. Because a lot of people, when they talk about bearing the cross, they talk about circumstances that they're 
and that are hard that they didn't choose that are not necessarily the picking up of the cross. And so it could be enduring a, a wayward teenager and just talking about, so we just, you know, we're bearing our cross, we'll continue to love, and of course you should continue to love, and, and it is difficult when you have that. Maybe something that is difficult at work and somebody is abusive or, or there's challenges and people talk about carrying their, bearing their cross, trying to continue to be straight and just keep pressing on even though things are not ideal. And, and there is virtue in both of those things, but that's not the biblical idea of carrying your cross. Carrying your cross, we're told to pick it up. That means to do something for the sake of the kingdom that you wouldn't otherwise do, that you may suffer for, simply because you would rather love someone else than live. That's the call that Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, he will pick up his cross. That's not an optional thing. That's not like for advanced disciples. That's for all of us. ultimately to follow Jesus means to be renewed in his grace and to rest in his grace because all of those other things mean nothing if we are not in his grace. We find that as we're spending time in conversation with him in prayer. As we are engaged in, in worship in which we participate in the means of grace including this table.